there's been moments where I think like, well, do I want to continue making work about this? And then inevitably I end up, end up coming back to this subject matter because it's important because my brain won't let go. It's like, no, you, this is important and you need to do it. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Reynaldo Gilesembrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or for folks who want to develop their own letter forms for the screen or relief printed work. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the edition's first of you, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technical insights that is sure to appeal and inspire to scribes and enthusiasts across the spectrum of skills. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Miguel A. Aragon, an associate professor at the City University of New York. We talk about his ambitious, process-driven practice taking images from the headlines showing the realities of the violence of the drug war in Juarez, and how he deconstructs them with burnt embossment and power tools, using these techniques as a metaphor for the erasure of the lives of the young men lost. Just a quick audio note, there was something going on with my mic through about the first 10 minutes or so of this recording, so I sound a little bit like a robot underwater. Apologies, please ignore it. And do not let it take away from Miguel talking about his amazing work. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to go south of the border with Miguel A. Aragon. Hi, Miguel. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I, I feel like we have already have this international friendship going of, of, of meeting in Wisconsin and then now I'm back in Santa Fe and you're in London and we're already globetrotting I feel like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're right it's uh, it's pretty interesting right yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Printmakers around the world. Hey, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to chat with you. I've, I've known your work for some time. And like I said, it was, it was a treat to meet you at SGCI. But before we kind of dive into the, the meat and potatoes of the, of the talking about you and your work, would you please let us know who you are, where you are, maybe when you're not in London and what you do? Yes. So my name is Miguel A. Aragon, and I was born and raised in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, which is in the border in the border with El Paso, Texas. And currently, I am an associate professor at the City University of New York, College of Staten Island. But I am actually on sabbatical. I've been on sabbatical since last summer in 2021. So at the moment, I'm I'm just finishing my residency at the East London Printmakers. And I also, so I'm based in New York City, obviously, but I also have a studio in Berlin, Germany, because that's where I spend my summers and my winter breaks. Lovely. 
that sounds like a really wonderful kind of life to have as an artist. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about it a little bit later on and how you kind of ended up where you are now. But you mentioned that you were growing up in Juarez. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping you can speak to that a bit more because I also know that that influences your work. Specifically, I'm curious about what role art had in that part of your life. Did, did you see it a lot? Were there museums? Was it something that was in your family? What are those sort of early art formation experiences like? That's an interesting question for me, actually, because unlike most of your guests to the podcast, I actually was not one of those people who was always sketching or doodling or anything. I actually didn't get into art until I started my bachelor's. And this was, I guess, sort of by chance in that when I, I did all of my, my school in Mexico up until my high school. So when I finished my, my high school degree, then I needed to do my to get a, a college degree. And so in high school, they make you take those tests, aptitude tests to, to tell you which, like which career you're supposed to be more suited for. And so for me, it turned out that I should do industrial design. And at the time, both in Juarez or El Paso, Texas, and actually even, even now, I don't think there is a degree in industrial design. So the closest thing in my mind at the time was, well, graphic design sounds kind of similar, so I guess I'll go to there. Go to, go go study that. I chose UT El Paso because at the time, the graphic design program in the, in the university in Juarez was still very early stages of, of beginning the program, so I figured I'll just go to El Paso. And once I got there, the graphic design program was actually part of the art, the art program and still is actually. And so I ended up having to take a lot of art classes because that's part of their curriculum. You're supposed to take one class for each medium. And then once you're basically kind of like a, a junior, that's when you start taking your, your actually your, the area that you're supposed to be concentrating in. Which in this case for me, in theory, was gonna was gonna be graphic design, but I ended up changing, or rather, doing a double major in graphic design and printmaking. Yeah. yeah, and so I'm guessing because you didn't really find art and kind of find this real passion and aptitude for it until college, that's probably when printmaking entered your world as well. Hey, it was at some point you said you took a, a class in each medium, and, and printmaking was in there. Right. So uh, again, so growing up in Juarez, we do have a, a, a museum in Juarez, but at the time they were just not doing anything exciting. And I mean, I don't remember going to museums that often. I know I did, but really not that often. So when I went to a UTL Paso for my bachelor's, my very first class actually was beginning drawing. And I remember going into the class early in the morning very first college class and going to the room, there's still life set up already on the table in front of me, pull out my supplies because I already have them. And then the instructor just basically tell us, draw what you see. And I kind of sat there for, God, I guess 15 minutes until the professor kind of went around the room looking at everybody's progress. And then he's like, why, why haven't you done anything? So, and I told him, I was like, I've never drawn. Like, I don't know what, I don't know how to start. And then he just said, well, look at observe what's in front of you and then just try to copy it the best that you can. And I'll come back and, and give you some tips. And so I did and I kind of enjoyed it. And then that same semester, walking around the art building, there were these vitrines on the hallways. 
that were that are part of the printmaking, I guess, program. The printmaking professor, he he's the one who kind of uses them, and so he always had prints up there. And I was walking in front of one that caught my eye, so I stopped and I was looking at it, and it was an etching, but I didn't know at the time. So another student was walking by, and I asked him, "What kind of which class did they do this this piece in? Because I want to do something like this." And he told me, "Oh, that's printmaking." So I took the class next semester and went into the first class. The professor, he did a really quick intaglio and relief demo using like a piece of material that's Comatex. It's basically Sintra. But so he did a really quick examples of using it as an intaglio and then as a relief. And I was sold. I was like, this is me. So I kid you not, after that class, I went back to the registrars and changed my major to a double major in printmaking because like, <laughs> I, this is me. <laughs> what yeah. do you think it was about what you saw in that class that you just were like, this is what a young Miguel has been waiting for? <laughs> I, I, I think it was, just, I mean, honestly, it was that sort of sense of magic that we all kind of mm. talk about, pulling the print. The fact that you're making marks on a substrate and then that translating to a piece of paper. And even though what you did, it still looks different somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's so physical. I mean, using the machinery. And I mean, I love the studio when I came in. And so just seeing the professor doing the demos, I was like, man, this is amazing. I want to do this. And, yeah. Yeah. The magic moment of the reveal yeah. is... It never gets old. It never gets old. I was on a podcast, someone else's podcast a little while ago, and I kind of got asked a similar question about what is it about printmaking? Why do people fall in love? And I I think I gave a really similar answer, which was that you can be in a print studio with just people who have been doing it for decades, and yet everyone still wants to gather around the press if it's the, the last proof and the last color to see the paper come up and to Mm -hmm. see the finished image. And for me, it never gets old, no matter how many times I see it happen. It's still a moment of excitement. And then everyone wants to go back to whatever they're doing and be like, okay, have fun auditioning. Bye. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I mean, I think whenever I'm in a communal space, when somebody's printing, you always want to go and see what it looks like, even though you've seen the plate and you've seen the proofs or you've seen some of the prints on the, on the dry racks. It's just that moment of satisfaction of, peeling the paper from the plate that it, it it's sort of like that's the end in a way of the whole journey and you mm-hmm. want to be for that it's it's like the end and is the birth at the same time so like you want to be there for that moment of birth of the image i guess yeah i love that that's yeah that's very poetic i think and very <laughs> apt so you saw printmaking you fell in love you changed your double major and graduated and then what came after that for you? Uh, that, so I graduated and of course I wanted to do my master's immediately. Mm-hmm. At the time I was young and very full of myself. <laughs> I felt like I was a really good printmaker already and I needed to do my master's. So I wanted to go to the best schools in the country. And so I applied and I actually did get into the top programs at the time, which some of them are still the top programs to this day. And unfortunately, because I was an international student being Mexican, I just couldn't afford it. I mean, I applied to, I applied to places like RISD, Cranbrook, University of Madison, Wisconsin, and I got in in all three. 
And they offered me some some scholarships, but unfortunately, because I'm international, they couldn't give me a full ride. Right. And so it wasn't enough money. And then also being an international, I didn't qualify for work study or, mm-hmm. or some of the work studies. I didn't qualify for loans for sure. And so there was no way for me to actually afford to go to college. I I will always be grateful to Andrew Raftery from RISD though, because he held my spot for another year and he told me, I'll, I'll hold on to your spot and I'll try to find more funding for you and also try to find funding yourself. And we both did. The, the next year, he called me back and he said, I found you more money. What have you found? And I said, I did find some money as well, but it just still wasn't enough. And I mean, mm-hmm. that program is pretty expensive. So regrettably, I, I couldn't go. And so then <laughs> time just kind of went by. It took me seven years before I could actually, before I started my master's which is an interesting period in my life in that uh, during that time, my dad passed away just before I graduated from my bachelor's. And so I think that actually put me in a, uh, set me into the, into depression. And I think mm-hmm. during those seven years that I was just still back home in, in Juarez, El Paso, I was in a sort of depressive state and not really doing much. I continue making prints uh, here and there. And I actually got lucky and I started teaching at the University of Juarez uh, at college level, teaching printmaking classes. And that was a lucky break in that they needed a professor in printmaking because the professor that they had left suddenly. And so I I showed my my portfolio and they liked it. So they said, well, we'll give you, we really need somebody right now for this semester because it was about to start. So they told me, we'll give you a class. And if you do well, we'll talk about maybe giving you more in the future. And I must have done well because I was teaching there for seven years oh, without, wow. an, without an actual master's degree. So that was a, that was a really great experience, life experience in that it gave me teaching experience at the college, college level and allowed me to have access to a print shop, obviously, and mm-hmm. be active. And then eventually, like I said, I applied and this time I was smarter, <laughs> older, obviously, so I only applied to programs that I could afford if I needed to pay because I was still international. Mm-hmm. I was born in Mexico and I didn't have residency or citizenship in the U.S. And so one of these places was UT Austin, which is where I ended up doing my master's in or starting my master's in 2009. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you for sharing that part of your story so openly because I believe it's really important for people to hear that because mm-hmm. we hear a lot of people who are sort of out in the world and, and doing their art and being successful and getting residencies in London and spending years <laughs> in Berlin. And a lot of those people do have a story that's just like, oh, I was so great in my BFA that I got a full ride in my MFA. And, and then I immediately dropped into a tenure track position and this has been my life. And that's wonderful when that happens. But for the majority of people there are going to be more ups and downs and there are going to be periods where you're not feeling the forward momentum in the way that maybe you were used to as a, as a gifted BFA student or mm-hmm. just as someone in their late teens, early twenties. I mean, that's such, as you say, it's the time where you think that you're the everything and you're the very best, right? <laughs> everybody has, everybody does. Yeah. And so I just really appreciate you saying that there was a period of, of, going back and being back in your hometown and that there were, I think what it sounds like from what you said, 
ups and downs in that. You were dealing with a significant loss in your life, but you also got an opportunity to teach and and have access to a print shop. And that it's it reminds me of there's this Italian phrase. I don't know what it is in Italian, but I've I've heard that it's Italian. I know what it is in English, which is life is long, which kind of goes mm. against what we usually hear, which is life is short. Mm-hmm. But I really like life is long because it's this idea that just because something isn't happening now or doesn't feel right now, or just because you're in pain right now, life is long and there, it, there'll be another side to it. It's kind of like maybe their version of this too shall pass. And yeah. So I just, I really appreciate you sharing that because I know a lot of people who do experience ups and downs and do experience breaks in their career trajectory. And it's great to, to hear that if you, keep going and you can come back to it older and wiser there's a path forward for you when you're looking for it so thank you yeah 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 definitely i mean i think it's definitely how it has been a bumpy ride for me and i think it's it, it's for everybody it's just different levels of i guess setbacks and what we need to really pay attention and, and understand is and that that's life i mean life throws us curves and we just got to roll with whatever we're given and do the best that we have. I mean, during that time, if you were to ask me back then what I, how I felt about my life, of course, I would be very dramatic about how <laughs> it was a terrible time. And But in hindsight, it's like, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it was still pretty rough missing my dad and mm-hmm. and feeling like I should have been, should have gone to these places and do and done my master's and have the reputation of those schools and be making art and, and selling it and all this. But at the time, like I forgot that, well, but I was actually teaching. That gave me, mm. it, that gave me an edge that other people didn't have. And at the time, I, I don't think I appreciated it. And now definitely I do. So it's kind of doing, make do with what you have, I guess, like, like I yeah. said. Yeah. It reminds me of that idea of sort of like, both things can be true too. In in a just world, finances wouldn't have been an issue. If 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 we lived in a in a country where school wasn't so insanely expensive that people either can't go or they go into six figures worth of debt to do it and come out the other side. That's not cool, United States. Like that's just not cool. And it's not cool that there there aren't as many opportunities for international students because those schools are missing out by not being able to get that diversity of experience and artistic skills in their programs as well. So it all can be true. I think, I think in a, in a just and right world, which we're a bit far from currently, you could, you should have been able to go to RISD, but that pivot I'm sure taught you other things as well. And, and I've just experienced that a lot in my own life when I, I, I plan and God laughs and then <laughs> I have to be like, all right, what am I here to learn? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah sure. and, and I mean, I think all these experiences, good or bad, is what they make us. And that's something that I really have learned and and really take into account very presently now in that the bad is as good a teacher as, as the good. 
Um, I mean, we always say this as professors, right? Learn from your mistakes. We tell this to our students. You messed up the way that you were applying the emulsion or the way that you apply the, the hard ground on the plate. And so now you have not to do it. And so it is a good teacher. And I think we need to see that also in our own lives and, and the events that are completely out, out of our control. And just is like, well, I, I couldn't go to RISD, but that didn't stop me from making work. I mean, I, I did. I continue making work. Not as much as I should have probably, but it was enough that kept me active and obviously eventually into a master's degree program. So it's just taking those little opportunities that, that were given and, and making something out of it. And obviously, I mean, in my case, I do feel pretty lucky and satisfied that I continue doing what I love doing. And now I'm here in a much better situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what was it like on then the other side of your MFA? <laughs> That's <laughs> also you, another. <laughs> did you have to go through another another seven years of wandering in the wilderness, or uh, was it a little I mean, easier on you? <laughs> well, I mean, kind of. <laughs> uh, it's been a bumpy ride, like I said earlier. So my master's degree experience was. Not the best, I'm going to be Mm -hmm. honest, but as I said, I just decided to make the best that I could with what I was given. So I I met a lot of really good friends, made really good friends, both classmates, undergraduate students and faculty that are lifelong friends. And I'm in touch with them and they helped me out a lot with my work. And I, I hope that I also helped them. But the whole experience being in school and doing the classes and all the critiques and all that and some of the faculty just were not what I was expecting. I think it's interesting because when I started my master's, there was like a, a, a switch that was flipped in my life in that, like I said, I was I felt that I was in, a, in, in depression. And then when I went to my master's, that flipped switch and I was compl- a completely different person. Like I was mm. excited to be there and full of joy and really wanted to learn and and be happy and then <laughs> and then school kind of crushed those dreams a little bit <laughs> in the sense that it was not the experience that I, I thought it was going to be I thought I was going to enjoy it the whole time and don't get me wrong I did enjoy a good portion of it but I guess that's what a master's degree experience is from what mm. I talk with a lot of friends you kind of both love it and hate it. And I will acknowledge also that this that program is kind of, it made me who I am, mostly because, again, I had to find the resources and do what I needed to do to pursue my goals and to do what I wanted to do. And so that made me more resourceful, I guess, because I was lacking resources. And so I had to mm-hmm. find them somewhere else. And so I came out of it. And very fortunately, I've, I think I did pretty well because graduating from the, with my MFA in 2012, Michael Barnes gave me a call that summer. I was still international and I had it the summer to find a job or I was going to have to go back to Mexico because mm-hmm. they give you like a working visa that is supposed to be for a year. But at that time, they changed the rules and you only had three months to find a job. Oh and if you didn't, then you had to go back to your country. Yeah. So I was in Austin, not knowing what I was going to do because I applied to jobs and hadn't heard from anything. And then Michael Barnes kind of ca- calls me out of the blue and he's like, hey, 
I need a sabbatical replacement because my colleague is going on sabbatical and I've seen your work. I love what you're doing. And are you free for a whole year? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes. Yes, (laughs) Yes, So I moved to DeKalb, Illinois, and I mean, he was, he's so generous. I, I really love Mike. He's really good friends. He let me stay at his place while I, while I got, when I got there, because he was out of town. And while I got settled and while I, while I find an apartment, he got me an amazing studio and he gave me some classes, obviously, for the year. So, so yeah, I lived, I did that. And then during that time that I was teaching at Northern Illinois, I continue applying for jobs, obviously, because I knew that it was a one-year position. And that's when I got the big break. This position in New York City opened up. I applied and I got I got it. I got the job. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty happy because by then it's like, okay, I don't have to go back to Mexico and I get to live in New York City with yeah. a paid job yeah. and kind of the dream, right? It's like, oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I know that every career path, I'm sure, is sort of full of uncertainties and ups and downs, but it really feels like life in the arts and life as an academic in the arts is so dramatic. I mean, so many, am I going to get this? Is this the break? Mm-hmm. Am I going to have to move back home? That's something that we really put ourselves through, I feel like, <laughs> in order to be in the arts. I've been thinking about it a, a lot lately, just because I've moved a lot for jobs. I've moved internationally for jobs in the past few years. It's it's something that nobody tells you. Once you're in it, once it's the water you're swimming in like it is for us, it just seems really obvious, I feel like. But it's not like when you're doing an MFA or an art history degree, somebody sits you down and says, okay, just so what you're signing up for is a life <laughs> with a certain degree of a certain amount of uncertainty. And it's, it's funny because it definitely makes you realize that you have to really love what you're doing because that sort of security isn't going to necessarily come from, from other factors. Yeah. So it's interesting. And and hearing you talk about the, the master's degree, I feel like is another side of our world that doesn't get explained to kids who are going into (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah. And and actually, I mean, I remember before, before starting my master's, right after I finished my bachelor's and just before I started my master's, like I was asking around to some of my older faculty from my bachelor's or, or people that I knew about the experience. Like, what what should I expect? What is, what is it like? And nobody told me anything. Like, everybody's like, oh, I can't explain it. You, you have to mm-hmm. go through it. It's the only way that, that, that you will understand. And in all honesty, I mean... I guess I, I believe that it's like, okay, I, it, it, it's weird. It must be something interesting. At the same time, I, I thought that they're keeping it a secret because they don't want the, they don't want the enigma to be out in the open. <laughs> and uh, I guess to, to, to make me less excited about going or something, I thought. But I feel like it is one of those kind of mysteries that needs, needs to be disclosed, to be honest, yeah. because when I was in it, I was like, oh, that's why you didn't tell me. Because it's so bad. <laughs> and if you would have told me, I would not be here. 
<laughs> and and partially it might be true. Maybe it's better if we don't know. But at the same time, like in my case, I really wish I I knew so that I could prepare better, so that yeah. the shock would not have been so so harsh. But I mean, I, I still like I said, I, I still think that it was a good experience and that it made me the artist that I am for what is worth and good or bad. I think it, it all comes down to the individual. I mean, I think comparing to some of the people that were doing the masters with me, I know I am, I was one of the, the few or one of the, one of the, 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 the master students who were really taking advantage of every single opportunity because mm-hmm. I was older. I was older. I was, I think the third oldest student of, of my class uh, and so I kind of knew that this is what I wanted and I was investing everything. And some of my classmates, I mean, they were too young, perhaps they're doing great now. But back then, I I do remember things like you should be putting more energy into this, They're spending more time in the studio, taking advantage of the resources, taking advantage of the opportunities that were given. Simply like visiting artists, sometimes you can sign up for critiques with them. And I remember most of the times those lists were empty. Like nobody was taking up yeah. slots for for having them. So I was always one of the first to sign up because I needed, I wanted feedback. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think that's really significant. And it reminds me of my own experience in college and how I, I mean, I really think at, at 18, they just should have like, let me go like run around in a field for like three years. Like, like I was like, so not ready to sit in a classroom and focus and, and, and get out of the experience what I could. Cause it's an, college is an incredible experience. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's a place where, as you say, there are so many resources often thrown at you and Oh my God, at 18, I was like, I should have just been like, like a free range student or something like out in the woods like I just was like (laughs) no just interested in kind of in anything but and and now that I'm older I've always thought if I was to go back to school I would get so much more out of it because I would really understand the unique experience that college is and I also understand the money better mm-hmm. like i like oh alone okay sure whatever i've never had a job like i don't understand how hard could twenty thousand dollars be to pay back i don't know like yeah <laughs> that kind of thing so yeah it's i i i think that older students t- do tend to get more out of that experience for sure because we just know more about the world i do want to make sure that we've got plenty of time to actually dive in a bit on your work and your actual practice mm-hmm. and the subject matter. And, and so right now, from what I've seen sort of of your work and from doing a little bit of research of your practice leading up to our chat here today, a lot of it is focused on the, the human toll of the drug trade mm-hmm. in, in Mexico. And there's, all kinds of different ways that you're going about it and you're using really interesting techniques and innovative printmaking processes. But I've got a a couple of questions sort of before we get to that part of it, I would say maybe one would be how long did it sort of take you in this journey that we're talking about to really sort of find that voice and realize, okay, this is something that 
I'm going to find meaning in working on for years for, for, mm-hmm. and, and really make an intrinsic part of your practice and what you create and what you put out in the world. Was that something that you were working on when you were in Juarez after your BFA? Was that something that came out in your MFA? Was that something that happened later? When did you sort of find that? Actually, uh, I started making work about with this subject matter since my bachelor's, since my studies there in at UTEP. And all of this is unfortunately because of what has happened in the city and now the country. Juarez being one of the major corridors for trade with, with the U.S., not only for drug trade, but just general trade of goods, it, it's been an important city for, for that reason. So violence has always been a key element in the city. But back then in, in, the, in the early 90s and mid-90s, when I was doing my bachelor's, when I started doing my bachelor's, the, the violence in the city, it was definitely concentrated in the city. But it was also not in public view. It, it, it's, mm. it's sort of like a, a, a time that I call sort of like in, clo- in closed doors violence because it was definitely happening. Cartels were fighting for the plaza for control of the area and they were kidnapping their, their members from, from the other cartels and torturing and killing and then disposing of the bodies. But they were doing it in a way that they were trying to avoid for those bodies to be found. They were not trying to make the news, obviously, because they didn't want it to be attracting any attention, of course. But of course, here and there, the bodies would eventually pop up because it's impossible to really hide a body. And so I remember just looking at the, picking up the local newspaper, the Diario de Juarez. It seemed like every single day, there was one story of a body being found in the city that was mutilated or that was signs of torture or obviously just simply murdered. And I started collecting those newspapers because they, they intrigued me because of the stories. I could not, I don't understand why. I just, my curiosity, I guess, got the best of me. And I started collecting those newspapers. So when I was doing my bachelor's, I was experimenting, learning the techniques. And and then I started using that as as a subject matter because my professor, Kim Bauer, he was really keen on, on pushing us to really be thinking about what kind of work we want to do and and making sure that we were doing something that is interesting, both conceptually and technically. And so he helped me out a lot with that. And then eventually, of course, an official drug on wars was declared by the Mexican president in at the end of 2006. And that's when all hell broke loose, really. Mm. The violence just was out on the streets. The cartels were did not care anymore whether it made the news or not, because they just were just scrambling to basically have a control of the areas to be able to continue their business and make money. And so, of course, that opened my eyes even more. And I was like, this is important. And I need to follow this and I need to make work about it. And I think more than anything was the fact that these people who were being killed, they became numbers, they became statistics. And... That was something that I could not accept. There were human beings. They were mostly men between 20 to 50 years old, 
at the beginning. And regardless of their life choices, they were somebody's family. They were somebody's mm-hmm. son, father, uncle, brother, whatever you have. And it uh, to me, it didn't matter what what they were doing for, for life. It's just that they were human beings being taken out of generations of young men basically yeah. being erased from the country. The city first, obviously, in Juarez, because we were the epicenter at the beginning and then eventually moved all around the country. It's, and still is. I mean, violence is still there everywhere. So I just had to continue making work about it. So when I when I started my master's, I kind of stopped. I stayed away from the subject matter for a little bit, mostly because I just wanted to shift my perspective and, and see what else I could do. But I couldn't stop. Eventually, I found... Uh, a perfect, the perfect technique, in my view, that would help me talk about this, this, these ideas that I had, and it was like the perfect marriage of technique and subject matter, and it just exploded from from there for me, and it's what I've been continuing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much in what you just said. I'm just taking notes here, and that tendency that people have to really dehumanize sort of quote-unquote criminals or gang Mm -hmm. members it's such a universal thing it's something that we do so intensely in the states as well and I think part of that is people trying to convince themselves that it couldn't happen to them Mm -hmm. they need to otherize the people who are killed in this sort of violence because it's, it's terrifying and it's horrifying and it's tragic. And if you can say, Oh, well they were criminals or, Oh, they made bad choices with a complete lack of empathy or understanding that I'm sure had they been born in the circumstances that these young men were born into, Mm -hmm. they would be in the circumstances that these young men are in. And and that seeing humans, as you say, as numbers, it really leads people to, I think, not, not take the sort of social and civic and moral responsibility over the loss that people should as, as a society. And, and so the work that you're doing of making these bodies the subject of works of art that get seen within the context of fine art and within the context of these spaces is really, really interesting and kind of beautiful work, I think, because there's an inherent reverence in the space of fine art that people come to. And so it's it, it, there's there's just this act of re-imbuing the lives with the reverence that they deserve, which is mm-hmm. the life of another real human being, as you say, someone's family member. And yeah, so it's just really significant and really interesting work. And something else I, I, w- I wanted to ask you is that I've, I've heard at some point or somehow picked up along the way that the media or, or print publications in Mexico do tend to show maybe more graphic imagery. Is this correct than in the States? So like of, of the bodies. And so <clears throat> some of the 
imagery that you use can come from mainstream publications in a way that in in the states we just we don't culturally there's just something different there where we we don't show a mutilated body in the paper it's mm-hmm. just it's all written about instead is is that correct yes in mexico we have a different relationship with death i guess mm. culturally and so we're not as a, as a as a culture we're not we don't shy away from seeing very graphic and explicit images and there is sort of this, I guess, custom of, of having daily newspapers show very graphic images mm-hmm. of, of all kinds of events like car crashes and then having like a very explicit photo of the casualties from a just a normal car crash that are very shocking, obviously, for any young person or anybody, really. But it's something that is, it's, it, was, it was common in Mexico. I think it's less common now, to be honest. Mm. Okay. So the main source for my images at the beginning were actually photographs that were published in the local newspaper in Juarez, the Diario de Juarez. They were like front page images, and these were raw images, really, like no filter, no censorship. But that was we were not used to seeing those type of images to that degree. Um, but because we were kind of used to seeing those images, it's not. We didn't really question that at the beginning, but then it started happening so often that that's when you're like, "Whoa, this is this is every day and multiple times a day having these pictures in the in in what is the reputable newspaper, not even like the tabloid. It's like the the actual news, the one that demands respect." And eventually, over the years, they started publishing those types of pictures. Because the cartel members actually started demanding the newspapers to not publish those those images. Mm-hmm. Because then it became a war between them in that if one cartel would kill a member of another cartel, and then the newspaper shows that photograph to the public, of course the cartel who the the cartel whose member that was part of they're going to feel bad about it. It's like, hey, that, that was my brother in a way. And so I don't want you to showing corpses from, from my people in a way. And so they started targeting the news, the, the journalists and telling them don't publish these stories. And eventually the the newspapers decided to, to just self-censor and, and simply do the stories and have less graphic images mm-hmm. because they just weren't, they didn't want to get basically in the line of fire because that's basically that's what was happening. Because a lot of the times the cartels, they were using these events when they would leave a body in the middle of the street, they would leave it with a, with a message. Yeah. And so they were, that's how they were sending messages to each other. And so, of course, the media was publishing all of that and they just couldn't cope. I mean, mm-hmm. the cartels or the citizens or even the media itself, I mean, it was just too much. So it was easier for me to have access to those type of images at the beginning. Eventually, I ended up having to move online, also because obviously I left the city and the country. So I'm still able to find a lot of those images. But but yeah, that's something that in Mexico we have sort of traditionally been able to to see those type of images, as opposed to other countries like the U.S., where it's it's very rare to be able to see an image like that. And I think it's because of our understanding of life and death in in our culture. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a culture that's 
more repressed when it comes to death and contemporary American culture. <laughs> like where we were way behind the times on that one. I don't know. Like just in, in terms yeah. of not facing it, not talking about it, sterilizing it and, and all of that. I think it's much healthier for humans to live alongside their impermanence in a, in a, in a more present way. But that's, that's a whole other podcast. But you mentioned um, the technique, this burnt residue embossing. Is that, mm-hmm. I guess, is that what you're speaking of? Could you talk yeah. about the process and how yeah. it to the subject? So when I was doing my master's, one, one of the faculty members told me that there was laser engravers in, on campus, not at the art building, but at the architecture department. And I had heard of them, never seen one in person. And so I was excited when he told me. So I immediately went looking for them. And as soon as I got into the building, got into the the room that they had them, all the architecture students were using them to cut cardboard or chipboard rather to make their maquettes. And I just remember like that was the the switch for me is like, oh, this is the perfect medium to me, for me to make work about this because I came in, I saw the laser basically burning the chipboard as it's creating marks and leaving this layer of soot on the surface of, the, of those chipboards. And I immediately knew as a printmaker and because I, I'm, I'm so attached into experimenting with different materials or just exploring materials in nature, I knew that I could make images that way and then transfer that pigment onto paper and make them permanent. So I immediately got access. So for the last last two years of my studies, everybody at the architecture department thought I was an architecture student. Because <laughs> technically I didn't I should not have had access. I just signed up for the the orientation to be able to use them and they asked me, Are you an architecture student? I was like, yes, they didn't check. So that that went well, and then I just I started going and, and making my, my images that images that way. So yeah, so I, I kind of I guess sort of developed this technique where I engraved images onto these chipboards, burning through and deep enough that I would be able to take them back to the studio, and then selectively pick out some of the parts to be able to create really deep embossments. And I had to be very careful because the suit is obviously on the surface, so I couldn't touch it. I could only touch on the areas that I knew that I wanted to be white or that I knew that I was going to be removing. So it was very stressful taking those plates out of the machine and then having them to carry across campus without all the dust basically blowing away and then getting into my studio and then picking out all those areas and then basically just printing them in taglio, damp paper on on the surface, running through the press. And it just created these beautiful images that sort of look like la- abstract landscapes that are basically white on white with mm-hmm. heavy embossments. But then it has this burnt pigment, which I assign sort of like the meaning of it, rem- it, it resembles the burns that a gunshot would, would leave mm-hmm. on, on, on the skin or on any fabric that anybody is, is wearing when, when killed in, in close range, obviously. And the the important thing for me about those images was that the image would eventually, after spending time looking at them, that the image would reveal itself, and, and it does. Unfortunately, I feel that seeing them digitally or on projections when I do my, present, my artist presentations, the images are so much easier to see. When you see them in person, they're really so physical and so abstract that it's really hard to understand the image. But 
over time, when you're spending a few minutes in front of them, eventually I, I could tell when the viewers understood that that was a body, a cadaver, mm. or that was a severed head. And it was a shock to them, but they wouldn't look away. They continued to look. And that was exactly what I was looking. I was trying to lure the viewer into something beautiful and then basically give them like a punch in the gut. I was like, this is not beautiful. This is what's happening in my country and the violence that we are creating. I mean, not really just in Mexico, but this I see it as something universal. And yeah, so that's that's kind of how I developed that that technique. And, and there's a lot of metaphors that I do with with those pieces. And then I moved on to doing the hand drill pieces that I'm sure you also saw. And it's sort of a similar in that I wanted to explore with another technique or another process that would be violent and would also give me different kinds of textures and different surfaces to to continue exploring the the, the message basically. Mm, yeah, I I've always loved embossed work. I think in part for some of the qualities that you're talking about, this ability to have this tension between the reveal and the obstruction of the image. Mm. And I think to use it to tackle something that sounds like it's both hidden and in plain sight, something like drug related violence, drug trade related mm-hmm. violence. And is just, it's just really wonderful. And as you said, like a, a technique that really marries subject and process which is such a an important and satisfying way to to have a practice to make work mm-hmm. i'm curious if have you ever and i don't know if this is just a completely out there question but it's one that came to me while we were speaking have you ever had any people directly involved in cartels or in the drug trade whether it's government or or dealers or, or whoever see your work or interface with your work or respond to it people who are who are more actually living day to day what your practice comes from mm-hmm. that's a great question I, and i don't i don't really have i don't have a real answer for that mm-hmm. i know that former drug users have seen my work mm-hmm. and their comments i think they've been limited mostly because they just don't know how to talk about art and they don't know how, I mean, they've been positive. They respond and we chat, we talk and they understand what I'm trying to do. And I think they agree with me that, that what I'm doing is important and, mm-hmm. and is, it seems like it does affect them and that they're working in, in the way that I, I'm intending them to do. But the discussion is, you know, I guess not as in depth because of they don't, they don't have the, the art background, I guess, yeah. to have like that, those mm-hmm. type of conversations. But, but yeah, as far as like former cartel members or drug dealers, I don't, not to my knowledge, maybe mm-hmm. they have, but they haven't said anything. I have had families, family members who have lost people because of the violence mm-hmm. also see my work and respond to it. And this was in Mexico City when I had an opportunity to show some of my work and do an artist talk. And there were several family members who had lost people 
and they came to me after my talk and that was really great also to hear the support that yeah. that they and, because they, they 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 were they are activists themselves now trying to work against violence and all this and so they were like encouraging me to continue to do this and and show it out as much as I could so the world will knows and hopefully we can find a a way to stop it mm-hmm. i met a lot of actually cartel members low level before the violence was really bad in in Juarez and this was because i was working i worked for a time at a small hotel and for some reason this hotel became sort of like a hub for <laughs> drug dealers to come and stay whenever they needed to come to Juarez and so uh-huh. It, the hotel, it was only 12 suites, and it was in the middle of a neighborhood. So it was really remote, like non-touristic at all, and like totally no nobody would know that that's a hotel. I don't even know how they found out. So it kind of made sense at the same time. And once you get one, they start telling everybody, and because it's so inconspicuous, so hidden, I guess, like it was perfect for them. Mm-hmm. And I do remember, like I said, I met many of them before the violence exploded. And then eventually over the years, I remember hearing that a lot of them were just disappeared or killed once the, once the violence started. And that was, that was kind of hard to hear. Like, wow, I, I remember meeting those people yeah. and, and then not, not knowing what happened. I have one cousin that is lost. We don't know where he is. He's been lost for many years now. He was involved with you know drugs. We don't know to what degree, or at least I don't. And so I don't know. We don't know what happened to him. He's still there. He might still be alive, just hiding somewhere. I don't. We have no idea. That's as close as it's gotten. I've been very fortunate that it has. The violence hasn't really touched me directly or friends. I mean, there's been different types of events of like family members or friends of other friends that have been kidnapped and then they pay a ransom and let go, but really nothing major. I will say, I I don't mean to, to laugh, but just that I feel like that's so much context in the sense that that is nothing major. Just the idea of being kidnapped and ransomed. You're like, nothing, nothing crazy, just a little kidnap and ransom. But I I think it it speaks to the the level at which the violence can take place, that that mm -hmm. someone being returned home safely is an incredible positive outcome. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, you're right. I make it sound less than it really is but it is because there were there were all the and still are there all these different layers of kind of events that can happen in your life and i mean kind of getting kidnapped for the day and just taking you around to all the atms and taking as much money as you can to give it to them and then they let you go like that's that's an easy one that's a lucky one obviously but yeah i've been in two situations where i could have been shut out Mm -hmm. um one in Juarez and one in Austin, Texas. Oh. Yeah. So in Juarez, this must have been like 2008. I was driving the girl, the girlfriend that I had at the time. I was driving her home. It was it was a, a weekday, and it must have been like nine or ten p.m. in in the evening. And so we got to a four way street that had lights, street lights. And so I'm waiting to turn left because I have the, the red the red light. And then on that left, 
there's another car that also has a red light and was also waiting for the green. I think they were supposed to go straight. So literally a couple of seconds before my light turns green, another car comes from behind the car that's waiting on my left, speeding, stops next to them, and then just riddles the car completely with bullets. And then immediately makes a U-turn and speeds out. Mm. So if a second or two seconds earlier, the light would have turned green for me, they would have crashed directly into me or they would have shot shot us out as well. Mm -hmm. Once we were very close to my girlfriend's at the time house. So we got to her place, immediately called the police and they told us, yeah, we're, we're aware of it. So don't worry. There was one survivor. They they ended up killing the two people who were in, in the front, in the front seats, um, the driver and, and the co-pilot. But there was somebody in the back, and I think he just crashed into a bull and survived. And he was there for like an hour. The police and the paramedics were not able to take him out of the car because he was in such a shock that he just wouldn't leave the car. I don't I don't know what happened. I don't remember the story after that because this was such a common event at the time in Juarez that you would forget it immediately because the next day there were many more or even just that day there would be another one and then in Austin this was in September of 2010 I was this was early on a weekday I went to one of the one of the libraries that the university has the PCL and right at the entrance, as you enter the, 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 the library, there was, or there is probably still, a computer lab to your right, which a lot of people use to obviously look for the books that you want, write the numbers, and then go look for them, which is what, exactly what I was doing. So I got, I sat, and I was with my back facing the main entrance. So I was there for maybe like two minutes, maybe five at most. And then all of a sudden, I see all these people in front of me on the on the computers just getting up, having a horror expression on their face, and then running. And so I turn around, and as I turn around, I see this guy with an AK-47 mm-hmm. walking through um, into the building. So, of course, I grab my things and also just kind of run out. It ended up, fortunately, that it... it it was a student, actually, of the, a sophomore, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And fortunately, he was not looking to do a mass shooting. He just came in, went all the way to the top of the library, and I think he killed himself. I don't think mm-hmm. the police killed him. But I feel very fortunate that if he wanted it to be a mass shooting, like I would have been one of the first victims because I was not, I had my back to, to, the, to the entrance. I would not have even known what hit me. And this, these are stories that actually very, I've told very few times. And in all honesty, I don't even know why, because they do give a lot of context to the work that I do. But it's just kind of, I think it, it also kind of has proved to me that the level of sort of acceptance to the violence that I had to live with when I was in Juarez, because I lived in Juarez through some of the worst years that the city experienced. And we went through, I think as a community, all the citizens, we just kind of accepted it and we just kind of tried to live our lives the best that we could. And we tried to sort of filter all those events and not think about them 
or take them too hard because we would, would not be able to cope. And I mean, I also remember like after I left for, for Austin to do my master's and then coming back after the first semester, coming back home, my mom picked me up in at the airport in El Paso and then we drove to, to Juarez. And I remember coming into the city and seeing it like a ghost town. Like it was, it looked so different to me. And this was only like four, six months after I had left. Mm. So not really, not that long. And I remember, I, I told my mom, I asked her, like, what happened to the city when I was gone? I said, it, it looks, and she just asked me, like, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's deserted. Like, there's nobody. It looks like a war zone. I mean, there's nobody here. And all the all the stores are closed. And she just turned around and looked at me and she said, it's exactly like when you left. <gasps> and that that's when I, that's when I realized that I had it. Like my filters were removed. Like yeah. I, I, I gained my my eyesight in a way at that moment, and I started looking at the city differently, because that's when I realized that all the houses or most of the houses looked like self-imposed imposed prisons. Yeah, we had doubled our security systems. Our our gates were taller. We had razor wire. We had electrified fences. We closed windows, like break them up completely. So there was no windows anymore into the house that faced the street. And yeah, so that was a huge realization for me. It's like, wow, we really just kind of accepted or we had to like, we had to move on somehow because we couldn't leave and we had to accept that this is, this was life here. So it became even more important for me to, to make work about it. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of those stories. And it feel like it's a, 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 one of the questions that I had for you was around how you practice self care and like good mental health. <laughs> when you've, you've, I didn't know that you, you had, those experiences, but it was, it was based around doing that, taking care of yourself when you're dealing with such intense, difficult subject matter and making that in a sense, part of your everyday life by making it part of your art practice. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that you're okay or as okay as you can be? That's a great question. And I think I just, I feel like I, I really try to take my life experiences, like enjoy my time as much as I can. And I think that's why I'm enjoying traveling so much. And I enjoy going pretty much everywhere, like sightseeing, going to exhibitions, going to parks, going to concerts, like everything. Like I, I am taking in as much of, I guess, maybe even mundane events and just appreciating life in that sense because that's what makes, I know that's what makes me happy. And I think that's what, that's why my, that's my coping mechanism. Because when I'm doing my research for the work, I go through through three stages. I go through a stage where there's only months of me going through news articles and photographs and just reading all those stories and seeing all those pictures and videos to to a point where 
I can't anymore to a yeah. point where it's just too much and I get overloaded. And then once that happens, I stop for a few more months again where I'm just, my brain is processing all that information and I'm not doing anything. Like, I, I mean, I'm doing my daily habits and routines like I'm teaching or whatever, but I'm not doing any art. And then all of a sudden, after a few months, I feel the need to make work. Mm. And that's when I go in, get into the studio and start prepping and, and start making images and planning and doing all of that. And when I'm making the work, I purposefully choose techniques that are process-based, that are repetitive, because that's how allows me to be able to not look or, or rather not to think about the images and the subject matter. They become these mechanical actions that I'm just doing. Mm. And it's not until the image is almost finished when I'm proofing or when I need to step back and see if the, if the image is actually working to, the, to what I want it to, to be, that I allow myself to think again about these people and the stories and the, all that information. And then, and then the pieces are done and, and then I go through basically the same process all over again. Mm. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And that it sounds like it tricked me if I'm wrong, but it sounds a little bit like, the practice is the processing and the practice mm -hmm. is the self-care because it's, mm -hmm. it's been such a part of your formative years, your, your family, your life that it's not, it's there whether or not you're making work about it for you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. The process allows me. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's part of me now. And unfortunately, I, I guess I would say, it's it's how I am and it's who I am and I I mean I I've accepted that because there, there's been moments where I think like well do I want to continue making work about this and then I do have moments where I was like I don't I don't I want to be more a more diverse artist and I want to do something different and I do try but if inevitably I end up end up coming back to this mm -hmm. subject matter because it's important because I just my brain won't let go. It's like, no, you. this is important and you need to do it. And it's not that I feel that if I don't do it, no one else will do it because I know there's a lot of artists actually doing work about this and famous ones and not so famous ones. And some are doing even, in my point of view, even better work than what I'm making. But it's just something that I have to do. And mm -hmm. my hope is that all of us collectively will finally be able to show the world what's happening and... I mean, at least keeping record, I think that's, at least that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's just a, a really beautiful and significant kind of point to wrap up on is I would, I've got maybe a couple more questions. One would be in terms of people hearing your interview and understanding what a significant issue this is. I think that I think that most people, my, myself included, have just sort of a, a, a general sense of what's happening in, in Juarez. I think that the, as you say, kind of unfortunately, I think just the name of the city is now kind of synonymous with, with this mm -hmm. kind of violence. What can people do in kind of day-to-day -day life? If an art student is hearing this or a teacher or my dad who listens to the podcast, like <laughs> what can the, the citizens do is to help 
if there is something they can do? Well, I mean, there are definitely several organizations within the city and the country really that are obviously always accepting donations and support in, in any in any way. I think that one of the main problems right now is it's all these people that are disappeared, that all these families that just don't know where where their family members are located. And so there's groups of people who go out into the deserts and different abandoned areas and just basically looking for essentially bodies in hopes that they'll they'll find if not their family member, someone else's. And I think just paying attention to what's happening in the world and hopefully talking about it. I mean, that's my hope that if people are talking about it to the point where we all we are all aware of this uh, these things that are just gonna affect us and destroy our communities and, and our countries and, and the world, really. I mean, right now we have the conversation in the U.S. about all the mass shootings. Mm-hmm. It's, I think what happens is that when these events happen, we talk about it, but then five minutes later or a few days later, it's all gone. Mm-hmm. Um, we all forget it, and I think that's what we need to stop. We need to continue talk, having it be the point of conversation and and create some change. I mean, in the U.S. would be banning those assault rifles. There's no there's no reason for those to exist in a civil population. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to put some links to some of the organizations that you mentioned in the show notes. So maybe we can mm-hmm. follow up if you can. I'll find some and send them by you or if you have one in mind. Yeah, send yeah. me a link and I'll I'll put those in the show notes for people to, to see and yeah and and engage with and yeah so just to yeah as my my final question where can people find you and follow <laughs> you and see your work and and your travels and and all of that where are you yeah. out there on the internet <laughs> well i have my website obviously and it's aragonmiguel.com and i'm also on instagram that's a little harder. It's basically my name, Miguel.a.aragon. That's my handle. And I try to do, especially now that I'm on sabbatical and I've been traveling so much, I try to do as many posts as I can so that I can share with everybody places I've seen. Definitely print shops. I enjoy visiting both pub- publishers and just communal print shops museums and all the art that I see so you guys can follow me I post my own work obviously and process of what I'm doing but it's kind of like a hodgepodge to be honest it's just like (laughs) all over all over yeah so that's that's where you can find me wonderful well thank you yeah so much for chatting with me and for being so open about your stories and your work and I I really feel really honored to be trusted with the stories and to share them. And so, yeah, thank you so much. No, thank you, Miranda, for having me. It's This is such a pleasure to have a chat with you. And I'm a big fan of your podcast and what you're doing. And I'm honored to be part of the roster now. Oh, we're so glad to have you. <laughs> <laughs> If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. 
Also, if monetary support is not in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your listening app of choice or buy something from one of our wonderful sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Chloe C. Alexander. We talk about the power of boredom as a creative catalyst, public art projects and the rewards and challenges therein, how her work teaching children leads her to think about the ways in which they are influenced, and the great opportunities in beautiful Atlanta. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.